Welcome to Selling Point Podcast. This is our first live experience here, and I'm honored to be here with Roy Milan. Roy Milan served as the concertmaster of San Francisco Ballet for 40 years, I believe a uh, record that stands to this day for this uh, longest tenure of a major American symphony orchestra. Um, Roy is also professor of violin at UC Santa Cruz and the artistic director of Telluride Chamber Music Festival. Um, is there anything else? Um, That's too much already. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so thank you so much for having me here in your wonderful uh, studio. Um, we're surrounded by paintings and pictures of uh, fabulous violinists from, from the golden era. Um, Roy Milan also studied with uh, Ephraim Zimbalist and is the author of his biography. Um, it was actually reading this, this biography that inspired me to reach out to you and uh, start this conversation. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we met a few years ago at the Mendocino Mendocin, Music Festival. Yes. And uh, it was an honor meeting you and working with you there. You also let me uh, try out Ephraim Zimbalist's bow. I remember oh, that. It was yes. a, a notable moment that I got to try that out. Yes, that's right. I remember I did it. Yes, I still have it, of course. Mm -hmm. I used it only on special occasions. Right. Yeah, not, not, not a daily driver, right? <laughs> I never practice scales with it. Okay. <laughs> it's too good for that. <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, ask you, since you um, were... I remember I was at the conservatory, um, I think, when you um, stepped down from the ballet after playing there for 40 years. And I just wanted to ask you kind of what what have you been up to since? Like what's what's post-ballet life been like? Well, it's been very interesting. Of course, the thing that I didn't miss at all was the commute to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Almost daily. It was customary to finish a show at 10.30 and get in the car and get back at midnight, and then have to get up at 6 the next morning to get there for a 10 o'clock rehearsal. Ooh. And I did that not for 40 years, because uh, when I started, I was living in San Francisco. Mm. But when I decided to stay in a house that, that I'd bought down the coast in Bonny Doon, near Santa Cruz, um, I started that commute. That, that would be for the last, let's say, 15 years mm -hmm. of that period. Mm -hmm. I lived in the car. Mm. But it was great because they had given me a little room in the opera house, uh, not the the ballet, not the, okay. the music mm -hmm. department, but the, the costume department. They kindly saw me hanging around and said, well, let's give you a room. And it was great for sleeping because they had it was full of costumes. Uh -huh. And it was the, the most wonderful way to take an afternoon nap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have done it without that. Right. I had a little pallet on the floor, you mm -hmm. know, and I crawled up. Wow. It was great. And then clean up for the show. So it got to be a way of life. Mm -hmm. um, but it got to be quite an endurance test toward the end. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. But it felt very strange not to be doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. But I've always been teaching here, so I upped my load mm -hmm. at UCSC. And of course, I realized that I had the time now to practice again. Hmm. Of course, in the ballet, one of the things I loved about that job 
was that I played more standard concerti at more times than mm -hmm. any concertmaster of any orchestra. Wow. Because so much of it was part of the rep. I had a concerto that played Sibelius, of course, uh, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Chosen Poem, of course, Stravinsky, even Britain concerto. Really? Which uh, somebody heard and liked. And uh, that, uh, the Britain concerto was written for Heifetz. You know, Heifetz mm -hmm. loved to commission contemporary composers. Yeah. And he commissioned Britain, but when he got it, he looked at it and said, it's too hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Heifetz did. Heifetz said that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't learn it. So, um, naturally, some wag got hold of it and decided to make a ballet to it. And mm. all of a sudden, there I had to practice it. <laughs> <laughs> How convenient. Was, well, I had a wonderful recording of it by Ida Handel, mm -hmm. whom I enormously admire. Great Incredible violinist. Incredible violinist. She passed away a couple of years ago. Now. Yes, tremendous player. And she played it like, you know, chopsticks. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And I practiced incredibly hard, and I probably did a decent job. But I'll never forget uh, at the at the dress rehearsal, I came up, and in the pit, they stick a stand in the middle uh, of the orchestra so that I could be heard over the railing. It, I wasn't where I usually am mm. in the last section. I was sort of between the the woodwinds and the, the cherry. Okay, so you're in the middle. In the middle. And you're on strange. an elevated pedestal. <laughs> a little bit of a stand, and yeah. I raised my stand up, and I was surrounded by cacophony. Mm -hmm. But um, I came up there for the dress rehearsal. On my stand was the music, of course, and a little uh, clipping about the, the concerto mm -hmm. saying, saying that Heifetz had decided it was too difficult to play. <laughs> One of my dear colleagues had decided to put that on. <laughs> Here you go. Yes. <laughs> yes, great. And it was probably done in an all-good uh, spirit. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> always fun. Always great things happen to the valley. Yeah. So you got to play a lot of the, the standard violin repertoire because a lot of it has been choreographed? Right. Yes. Right. That got to be very popular after a while. People were doing all kinds of concertos. They also did Beethoven, late Beethoven. Mm -hmm. I played Bartol Cortez. Mm. Very wonderful, interesting stuff. That's interesting where I feel um, a lot of times, at least from what I've heard, when you are playing in a symphony orchestra for a long amount of time, um, obviously you get to play the best repertoire. It's great. But at the same time, the, um, the canon or the... Uh, the repertoire can become a bit repetitive uh, after maybe, you know, 10 years, how many times have you played Beethoven five or whatever it is, right? So that's interesting that in a ballet setting, you actually got to play a lot more of the standard rep and more, more variety than you might have gotten to in a more typical setting. more solos, of course. You, mm -hmm. you think about Swan Lake, you think of the solos and all this, you can be all the solos. Yeah. But in addition, they dug up these interesting things. Lou Harrison can show them. Mm. One of the things that Mark Morris dug up at some point, and uh, Charles Adams' Son of Chamber Symphony, which is an extremely difficult thing. Mm. We premiered that really? under him really? in 1980. And actually, I just did that last week with the Contemporary Music Plays in San Francisco. Right. They did it. I forgot to mention, you're a founding member of the SF Contemporary yes. Music Players, yes. right? Yes. Great. And of course, Jean-Louis Leroux, who was one of the three founders, was our conductor at the ballet. Mm, okay. So it was all very in the family for a long time. I see. Time, yeah. Lovely. It's great. Yeah. 
I was going to ask because I think, you know, we're going to talk about your, um, your book and your, obviously you have had this incredibly rich, um, uh, share in the pat the, the history of the violin where you have these, I mean, we're going to, we're going to show it later. You have like a signed postcard from Fritz Kreisler over here. You worked with Ephraim Zimbalist and, and, um, Yehudi Menuhin, right? And, and Yasha Heifetz and all these legendary figures from the romantic, uh, school tradition of violin playing. But also you have this, um, amazing de devotion to contemporary music where you've been also, uh, doing premieres with, but just like the ones you mentioned and you mentioned, uh, Boulez and, and yes. Messian and, sure. and Frank Zappa, who I love. Yeah, that, that was, I remember that because it was so, the crowds we never got that was in the opera house yeah and the security getting was just astonishing ah. yes <laughs> there were great events yes. so i wanted to ask you that so in a way um what do you see um as distinctive in the old school and maybe that's part of part of what we can get into where perhaps there isn't a single old school or room um romantic era tradition of violin playing, but um, I think a lot of times when violinists talk about the golden age, when they talk about Heifetz, when they talk about Chrysler and Elman and all these greats, um, there's kind of this nostalgia for this style and this kind of lineage that, that doesn't exist so much anymore. So I'm just curious, for you having been part of it for so long, what, what is there in that golden era that we could learn from, I guess, more today as violinists. Well, I suppose when you boil it down to one thing, it's soul. Mm -hmm. You know, these people, first of all, they were much more interesting people mm -hmm. than the artists one yesterday. This is great generalization, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, those people came from extraordinary backgrounds and just the very fact that you were playing concerts in those days involved a sort of stamina that uh, one can hardly imagine today. They complain today about playing uh, concerts in various places and they fly from place to place. I know that's, that's exhausting, I'm sure. But I remember Zimbalist telling me when they were on the early days, those, those tours would be by Pullman. They'd go cross right. country to country, uh, coast to coast. And sometimes they would arrive in a little town where they were supposed to give a concert and somehow the train had made good time or... And they would arrive, let's say, after the hotel had closed. Right. In yeah. those little towns, one can imagine that even today when you drive across country, which, which I love to do. But in those days, after a certain time, you couldn't get in. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would sleep on the doorstep until the, the hotel opens, they clean up, they practice a little bit, they go to the right. hall. And, and it just had to be there. <laughs> yes, to, I mean, the experiences that they had uh, cannot be duplicated. Mm. And I think all of those experiences and the fact that the world then was more of a struggle mm -hmm. than it is today. It took a lot of incredible uh, courage and, uh, and uh, they saw things that fed their souls. Mm. Uh, Zimbalist, for example, uh, toured Japan for the first time of any, no Western musician had toured before him. Right. It was in the 1920s. In right? the 1920s, and, and yes, it was about the first time. He went there every 
every two years for a couple of decades. And Heifetz had been there, and I don't know about Chrysler. I think Elman was there later. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was so popular, they wanted him to come back. And he said to the manager, I don't want to play just in Tokyo, and I don't want to play just the big halls. I want to play anywhere they want to hear me. Yeah. And the, his manager sets things up for him in little villages, and he traveled around, and he loved that company. Mm -hmm. Of course, he didn't make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, he did pretty well over the long run. Right. But, because um, then there was something about the way of life. I have read that must have been much more interesting than what we see today. Hmm. Uh, and I think that that came out in their playing. Hmm. One thing that you bring up or in the book that becomes apparent over time with Zimbalist is that he was very engaged in like culture beyond violin playing, yes. where he was he would obsessively go to operas and, and plays and art museums, and he seemed to have like this voracious appetite yes. for life in general. I think they all did at that time. Of course, his wife was a famous opera singer, Alma Gluck. Um, but they went to each other's concerts, and they yes, they they loved music. I remember. Um, when Milstein played a recital in Los Angeles some years ago now, and Heifetz was in the audience, mm -hmm. and someone went to him and said, Mr. Heifetz, why did you come here? And he said, to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there seemed to be a, a camaraderie and a fellowship. And there is today amongst certain of them. Of course there is. But life seems to me to have been so much richer and was reflected in their playing, yeah. and certainly in their outlook. And they were such well-rounded people. Mm -hmm. All of them were composers as well. Right. And, of course, we have some today who do that. Jeremy Cohen is one, for example, a fabulous mm -hmm. violinist who also can do anything. <laughs> but that's, it's not customary these days. But in those days, everybody composed. They, they knew music outside of the violin repertoire very well even if they hadn't been orchestral players. Right. You can understand that a player in the Philadelphia Orchestra would know those right. pieces backwards and forwards. But Zimbalist knew them too, just because he studied them, and he was a composer, of course, himself. Uh, there were amazing things about, about him. I remember once I was to play, uh, what concerto was it? It wasn't Glazunov. Goldmark control. Goldmark, okay. Goldmark. Now, you know, that's not a piece that you hear every day. No. And not a piece that anyone wants to learn. It's long and very <laughs> difficult. Yes. <laughs> but he assigned it to me one day, Zimbalist. And at lessons with him, you always waited outside his door until one o'clock. He taught one hour a day from one to two, and then he went. He practiced in the morning and taught one hour in the afternoon. Then he, he would go, uh, he'd go on and compose or whatever else he was doing the rest of the day. So you stand next to the door. And his pianist, Vladimir Sokolov, who mm -hmm. toured with him for years, was the pianist. And he was always there with you. And you would be standing outside the door, and he was very punctual. And right next to the door, at Curtis, this one, uh, there was a door that led into the bathroom. And you would hear the door open, and you'd hear the faucet drum. 
and he was putting out his cigar. <laughs> and then he'd open the door and say, good afternoon, mm -hmm. come in. And the room reeked of cigar yeah. smoke, of course. Uh, and you'd go in, and he'd sit himself down, and Sokolov would sit behind the piano, and you'd play it in Shoda. And that was it. And then Zimbus would excuse Sokolov, and then he'd hear a movement of Bach and a Paganini Caprice. That was his weekly assignment. And it was a different concerto each week. <laughs> it's a lot of practice. <laughs> so I, I came over to Goldmark and, and I said, uh, said, let me have the piano part. And I said, well, I, I don't have it. I just had the violin part. So he said, well, let me go down to the library and take it out. And so he said, don't bother me. Really. <laughs> you go off. And he sat down the piano without looking at a note. He knew. <laughs> Absolutely astonishing. It's remarkable. Once he assigned me what concerto was an incredibly long concerto. Let's see. It might have been the gold mark. But uh, and I started to play it. No, it wasn't because he was very candid. But some of the concerto was extremely cumbersome. And I played the first movement. And he said, okay. And I said, Mr. Zimnis, it's a very hard concerto, and that's all I've prepared this week. And he said, oh, very short lesson then. And he got up <laughs> and he left. It, uh, yes. And he went out, and across from Curtis, there was Rittenhouse Square, the, the, the park. Mm. And Sokolov said, oh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> and then he, he took me and he said, look, he took me to the window. And there was Zimbalist the walking in the park. Yeah. <laughs> Taking a break. <laughs> <laughs> so I was prepared to complete the show. Yes. That, even if it was wow. pretty raggedy. Wow. But uh, you get through quite a bit of repertoire that way. Yes. He's, so I said to him, but Mr. Simmons, you know, I used to do one concerto with Galami in a, in a semester. Yeah. And you learn it by memory and then you get a pianist. With Galami, you had a pianist play with you. A week or so before you were the end of the semester, and you were going to play with the children. Right. But Zimbus, you never played a piece without the accompaniment. Mm -hmm. And he had this great pianist right there. And uh, he talked about Galambia. And so with Zimbalist, I, I said, How can you possibly learn a concert every week? And he said, What you do is you learn what not to practice. It's, mm -hmm. it's a good lesson. Mm -hmm. And his idea was that you'd go around, and then the next time you go around, you'd find more things right but he wanted you constantly listening playing music mm -hmm. that's what's so important to him that sounds um obviously i believe the galamian and i want, would love to hear your experience of studying with him as well mm -hmm. the galamian model of learning a concerto over a longer period of time in great detail is certainly more than norm in, com in conservatory training today of course um it reminds the zimbalist uh, way you describe it reminds me more of Auer, where he, I mean, it sounds like Zimbalist was more hands-on than Auer in some ways. In the book, it was really fascinating to read, um, where Leopold Auer would have essentially a master class, right? Where yes. it was, the whole studio was there yeah. for every lesson, so he wasn't, in general, he didn't have the private lessons, it was just everyone was there. And yes. similar, where you would bring an entire piece, yeah. and he would demonstrate on the on the student's violin in front of the yes, whole class, and that's right. kind of how we would teach. Yes, right. Give the violin back and say, "Are you playing?" 
Yes, well, it was with Galamian, of course. Uh, it was a real shock, because in England I had studied with very good teacher at the Royal Academy, David Martin, and he he was a good violin teacher. He gave you etudes, he gave you scales, and he showed you a few things and mentioned a few musical points and wrote them in music. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a science. Mm -hmm. But with Galarian, it was absolute science. He had it all mapped out for you. You had an assistant assigned to you who saw you the day after the lesson with him so that he could tell him what you'd been working on and, and then they were drilling. And uh, you started from bas basically from scratch, mm -hmm. especially bowing-wise, of course. Right. Yeah. He had his the supposed Galamian bow arm, which has become the modern bow arm, really. You can't see good players playing today. Uh, the, the very fine players who don't have some Galamian influence. Right. Uh, and his principle basically was that the fingers on the bow should act as shock absorbers mm -hmm. and the, the toe will come from arm weight that everyone knows today. This, mm -hmm. this was something they never talked about before Galamian. Mm. They might have talked about it in France where he studied and where he picked up some of these things, but it was his, he really developed the whole thing and he had very ingenious ways of making you do things that, that would make you feel things. It was more mm -hmm. that than thinking because he didn't talk very much at lessons. He right. was very monosyllabic. Mm -hmm. uh, it was mostly, you know, intonation or you know, this or that, the other thing. And he always sat there with a cigarette and he held it the old French way, with the cigarette at the end between his fingers, and he was always puffing at it. Uh, and with Zimmer's the cigars, my God, it was, it was a, a miracle we survived. Gerald the second hand smoke. Yes. But um, then, of course, Galami sent you to the assistant the next day. Mm -hmm. And I had an assistant. I shouldn't mention whom, because the only time I ever cried at lessons was during those lessons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and with Galamian, uh, there was never any real talk about, um, of course, the harmonies that you would, you would expect that, but about the, um, how can I say, the, the, the intellectual understanding of what they were doing, it mm -hmm. was nothing of that kind, it was louder, softer, in tune or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was always absolutely correct right. and on. And he had a certain way of telling you how to do things and it would sound better right away. Mm -hmm. But he didn't talk about the essence of the music at all. Mm -hmm. Zimbalist, of course, was a wonderful composer as well, so he knew music inside out. Yeah. And he started that interest when he was at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, he was always interested mm -hmm. in, in the sounds of the orchestra. Most violinists at Juilliard, Perlman included, regarded the orchestra as a sort of a joke, <laughs> something we had to be doing you know, every week, and we got, got out of it and giggled. And, uh, but was him, was, when he was a student, he took that so seriously that he studied orchestration. Mm -hmm. That kind of life and well-roundedness was something that the Glamian school definitely lacked. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Glamian Oh, I'm sorry, I must interrupt you and tell you. Oh, please. Uh, though, that when people said that of him, mm -hmm. he pointed out that that wasn't his entire idea. Mm -hmm. His idea was rounded out by Meadowmount, the summer school, mm -hmm. 
where, of course, they called it the concentration camp. That's <laughs> where you went and practiced all day long, yes. got up at 6 o'clock for 6.30 breakfast, and yeah. that was it. But he hired Gengo to teach Shea music. Mm -hmm. Primrose was there. Uh, Piotr Gorski had been there. He hired, and, and of course, Gengo was the most wonderful person imaginable. Every mm -hmm. student loved him, and he was a great musician, and he was so... Uh, so encouraging and so inspiring and always spoke about nothing but the music. Mm. So that was part of Galamian's entire scope. Right. That's why he wanted you to go to Melbourne. It was also for that. Right. And there was chamber music at Juilliard. Mm. I remember Sonata classes. We had to have Sonata classes. Um, and that was good. But anyway, Zimbalist uh, was a fabulous all-round musician. Mm -hmm. And that made a difference. I remember um, when we spoke on the phone before this interview, you mentioned a story about Oscar Shumsky, yes. right? Um, where you were playing, I believe, with um, Katerow, right? Yes, David Katerow. David Katerow. And um, he was a colleague of mine and roommate uh -huh. when we were both going to Curtis, yes. Right. And so you mentioned how uh, you were going to play for him. I believe you played like Faust Fantasy or something, right? Yes. Um, Shumsky was appointed uh, at the Stratford Festival in Ontario, mm -hmm. Canada. Glenn Gould uh, was, was running the music part of it, but he, he got Shumsky to come there. Yeah. And he was in charge of chamber music. And a of couple of good musicians. <laughs> and he also conducted a little chamber orchestra. Uh, and Shumsky is another whole subject. But yes, so how did we start talking about Shumsky? It was... I think you, we were talking again about kind of the well-roundedness of musicians yes. and how you were, you played something for him. Yes. I believe you played... Um, yes, 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 for the, the audition, uh, that's what audition, I was. Yeah. We auditioned for the festival. We went out to Rye, New York on the train where he had a house that his father had built and all the furniture in the house had been built by Chomsky himself. Wow. He was an amazing all-round guy. And... So what we had to play for the audition was the Handel Halvorsen, Basakalia, and when I played it, he played viola, mm -hmm. and when Cadroche played the cello part, he played violin. Right. So that was quite astounding, <laughs> just at the beginning of the audition, that yeah. was the opening. And then he wanted you to play a concerto or something like that. And uh, I'd been studying the Faust fantasy with Zilda, which of course is not a piece that everybody knows, mm -hmm. and probably no one knows today. Uh, and Shumsky, of course, was a great pianist too. He accompanied Kedrout, I forget what he played. But then came to the Fast Fantasy. Oh, yes, he said the Fast Fantasy. He said, Have you got the pound part? Mm -hmm. And I said, No, no, I, I, I didn't have it. He said, That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> it knew everything. It's <laughs> amazing. Yes. I, um, I think that's. That appears to be maybe something that's different in the training now. Would you agree that maybe the way people are trained now is much more specialized, yeah, where sure. they're much more focused in on one instrument, where that breadth of knowing <clears throat> a violinist, knowing how to play viola, knowing how to play piano. I mean, there's kind of remedial classes that, um, at least having gone to Peabody and, and uh, SFCM, there was kind of remedial piano classes at the beginning, but yeah, yeah. 
you know, no one was playing Fast Fantasy from memory. Let's put it that way. Myself included. <laughs> no, no, of course not. So. No. Um, well, they were interested in the instruments. I remember taking piano at Curtis too. And although I played piano before as a kid, mm -hmm. I was only interested in playing the violin. Right. You know, it ended up playing Haydn quartets four hands at my lessons and I couldn't wait to get out. And as <laughs> soon as I didn't have to take yeah. lessons anymore, I stopped. And it was also because I wanted to practice more. Right. So I mean, you had to play a concerto every week, <laughs> so I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, they were so interested in those other instruments that they, they just did it all. Mm -hmm. So it came from but, actual personal like engagement and interest in the instrument. Yes. But I think also in today's conservatories, the, the pressure is so great to play perfectly yeah. and to spend all your time practicing contest-type material. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen in those days. Right. They were just studying music. Here we go. So, so they were studying music and loved it in all its aspects. Uh, and they must have been very talented. Zimmer's played the piano very well, although he didn't take many lessons at, mm -hmm. at St. Petersburg, so he said... Yeah. Hmm. Chrysler, of course, was a marvelous pianist. There's that, uh, I remember that story in the book where I believe it was Chrysler, Zimbalist, and Heifetz, right? Yes. Where they played Mendel, they did like a round robin Mendelssohn. <laughs> that was really cool. Yes. So. Yes, each accompanying each other. Yeah. And of course, there was that, uh, that story about uh, Chrysler's wife, Harriet. Who was very critical of him, and she kept him in hand. Of course, he was so they so they say a rather undisciplined mm -hmm. person who needed to be kept in line. But uh, so the story went that Heifetz played the first movement, the Mendelssohn and Chrysler played the mm -hmm. piano part, and Zimmer played the second movement, and Heifetz played the piano right. part, and then Chrysler played the last movement, and Zimmer played the piano part, mm -hmm. and. Uh, as Zimbalist told it, Harriet kept saying, Fritz, too fast, too slow, in tune, as you yeah. scratch, you know. <laughs> and uh, Heifert said to Zimbalist, what are we going to do? And uh, Heifert had an idea, and he went out into the pantry and had the, the maid, or the, whatever she was, in charge of the, the bar, mm -hmm. uh, Harriet's favorite drink, which was a drink that had ginger ale, a touch of gin on the top, mm -hmm. something like that, and they reversed the proportion. <laughs> in a few minutes, yeah. she was she was quite silent, and yes. Chrysler could finish the concert. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That one wouldn't give to me. Yeah, one. to be a fly on the wall for that. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I found that really interesting, just hearing so... Like, obviously, in those days, how they, uh, I think I got the same impression you were, you were saying earlier, where life was harder, there wasn't the same kind of standardization, there weren't exactly the same, pre there, there were more existential pressures back mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. everything was harder, yeah. you know, illness was much more likely to kill you, <laughs> right. like, life was, like, poverty back then was something quite different from poverty now, and all of these pressures were so much harder in a way, but at the same time, there were freedoms that we don't have, enjoy in exactly the same way today yes. in terms of um, 
just you know freedom from freedom from this <laughs> and so many things. <laughs> and uh, but I was I was going to ask you, um, kind of maybe based on your own experience um, studying with with symbolists too, who kind of came from this other world, like how do you use how do you channel that in your own teaching like what where do you see that as today well i suppose that the first thing i do is tell them about times that were different and let them hear performances that mm -hmm. were different i find in my teaching that i galamin's advice helps in solving problems mm -hmm. and but by way of inspiration, I always have them listen to other music uh, and to listen to the old plays. As a matter of fact, I have a CD that I give all of them. It's in here somewhere. Uh, all the old masters, it includes, uh, of course, the ones we were talking about, also includes Casals, mm -hmm. uh, Thibault, mm -hmm. uh, Primrose, and people that they would never have heard of. Mm. And that's interesting to me because it's fun to hear their reactions. The first thing they say is, oh, it sounds awful because they're from 78. Right. They're, they're not used to that. But uh, it always uh, captivates them. And they always like it. Mm -hmm. And I think some of them are surprised, especially those who haven't heard anything like that before. But outside of that, of course, we have a string quartet program here where they get full scholarship if they get in the quartet and they have to rehearse quartets three times a week and give a concert every year. So we have the chain music, of course, is really where I find they learn most about music. Mm -hmm. I, I did. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's that interpersonal communication, that sort of spontane, spontaneity in music making that happens in the moment with chamber music. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, and also thinking about things other than finger rings and... and uh, no technique. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, chain music, where would we be without that? I remember when I was you know, a young undergrad that there was this weird, I mean, I, it was like I could feel my brain growing. It wasn't comfortable <laughs> when yes. I did chamber music because it was this Haydn quartet, yes. and a Quintin quartet, um, yes. and uh, very difficult first violin part. Right. And I'd been practicing, practicing, practicing. And then the moment I sat down with the group, it all went away <laughs> because there was so much more to think about. I was yes, listening yeah. to this other like player. I was trying to sync up with this and anticipate that. And, yeah. you know, oh, then we're going to take time here. And there's all these other things. So I realized I had this very one track way yes. of learning something. It was just purely what? just what am I doing here? Yes. And then to open your awareness to this whole group was this entirely new experience. Yes. Well, you know, the same could be said of solo playing because... When you're practicing the shodo, you're practicing those notes, and although you may hear it a few times, and I, you know, I always listen to it all day long mm -hmm. on a recording, um, unless you're playing with a great orchestra and you have a great conductor, you're going to have to change your mind as soon as you step in front of a less good orchestra, yeah. because that makes you realize the way that I learned it isn't going to work. Yeah. Uh, that's a good experience too, but no, chamber music just brings you completely out of out of your little world. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. 
One of the things, so because I grew up, um, I was very, like my teachers also were very, um, my uh, teacher Nina Bodnar studied with, uh, do you know Francis Guy? Yes, do you know I Nina? Oh, oh, really? Okay, <laughs> there you go, small world. Yes. Yeah. What a, what a marvelous yeah. guy he was, Francis Guy. Wow. Tremendous. What I love most about his playing, you, did you see him play? I never met him, never saw him play. I saw him with the Philadelphia Orchestra. His recordings with Ormond are incredible. Just phenomenal. He had this, this wonderful habit. Uh, I heard him play Saint Sans. Where it came to the climax of the thing, he would pick his heels together and stand up extra straight. <laughs> it was just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And such a gentleman. Did you ever uh, speak with him? Or? No. Oh, no. I never met him, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. Heard him several times. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My teacher Nina would um, basically she would have me listen to um, like the man, many of the greats, and um, I really fell in love with just listening to Yasha Heifetz, Zina Francescati, yes. um, Tasha Seidel, Tasha Seidel, incredible player, yeah, and uh, so many of these old greats, and I think I instinctively felt a lot of the uh, of what you mentioned as well. Obviously I didn't have much as much frame of reference, but just the amount of color and imagination yes. that went into um, their playing. And, you know, they were, uh, I mean, Heifetz, you will talk about Heifetz. Um, of course I heard Heifetz from the time I was a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I was studying at the Royal Academy in London, he had just had a serious had a fall and he'd been in hospital and got hepatitis or something. He, he was, he'd been quite ill. Mm. And he decided as he's come back that he would come to London, where I was then a student at the Royal Academy, and make some recordings there. So that um, if they didn't turn out so well, he didn't have to release them. Mm. If he'd done that in the United States for RCA, mm -hmm. you know, it would have been out in the open. So he came to London. I was a student there, and one of my um, student colleagues' father was a freelance violinist, and he told us that Heifetz had, had they'd hired an orchestra called the New London Symphony, which didn't okay. exist. It was all freelancers <laughs> in London, uh -huh. uh, and he'd been hired to record two concertos with Heifetz. And his son, who was last year of mine, said, "You've got to go." So. We went to the, they recorded in, in the Walthamstow Town Hall, they might still do. Mm. It was out of London, where you had to take a train for distance, but there was this wonderful old hall that was round. It was a town hall, it wasn't intended for concerts, but the acoustics were fabulous. So they moved all the chairs to the side, it was a big circular place, and they set the orchestra up in the middle, and that's where they did the recordings. And I, two of us, my friend Tim and I, we took the, the tube and went down to Walthamstow and we got there very early and we stood outside, you know, a little bit shyly away from the door and we saw this grey Bentley coming down the circular driveway that came by and pulled up at the door of the town hall and out got Heifetz and his wife, then wife, his second wife, Frances. And we were standing there, and Mrs. Heifetz saw us, and she looked at us, and she came out, and she said, 
can I do anything for you boys? And uh, we said, we, we would love to have Mr. Hackett's play for a violence at the Royal Academy. She just said, I'll go and talk to him. I'll go and ask him. And she went over, we saw him, talked to him, and he looked over at us. And then we saw. <laughs> she came over and said, yes, you can come. And as, as long as you leave when they do the recordings, mm. you can come to rehearsals. So we came in and we sat there. And I was sitting as far from Heifetz as the, well, almost the end of this little studio. Mm -hmm. It was that close. Um, and they started recording. This, this, the first year was the Scottish Fantasy and the Brook G Minor. Wow. Which they did release, of course. But, um, I'm sure I've heard those recordings. Yes. Um, and I, I remember so clearly uh, they rehearsed a little bit. They'd rehearse and then they would record through. And then there was lunch. Mm -hmm. And then they do it again. <laughs> That's how they recorded. Yeah. And I have a wonderful photo of Heifetz with his mouth open. Uh, and he was shouting, too loud, <laughs> to Malcolm Sargent. <laughs> but, uh, so I was sitting close enough to Heifetz to have coughed and spoiled it. Yeah. And after they did their rehearsal, they rehearsed and recorded a movement immediately afterwards, uh, Heifetz looked over at us and we were sitting there like dead mice. <laughs> and he just nodded and they went ahead and did the recording. Mm -hmm. And we sat there and heard those recordings. But you were the there for the recordings. Time. Yes. Wow. And uh, so we can hear your cough. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would have been the end. <laughs> but what was fun is that the second, he, he did that the following year too. He recorded different pieces. I can't remember what they were that day. Uh, he did the Bach double with Eric Friedman, his student. Yeah. And he did the two. He did the one with himself, right? That's right. And yes. And he did the one yes. with Eric Friedman. Yeah. And the other concerto, I can't remember what it was. Oh, Vieton, Vieton Fifth. Great recording. And that year, he just started teaching at UCA, LA, mm -hmm. I guess. And he, he, was, he said he was looking for students. Mm -hmm. So he, someone announced that he liked to hear, would anyone like to play for him? So I, <laughs> I thought, sure. Yeah. You know, I was in my last year at the Academy, and I was thinking of going to Columbia, of course. Um, and I remember playing from this was in the little room off the big hall where he was having his lunch. He was sitting there at the table. And I started to play as Bach E major partita. Uh, and after a few minutes he tapped on his desk and his on his little table and he said, Don't shake, I'm not gonna bite you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> but do you know? I didn't shake after that. Really? Yeah. You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, he says it, yes. So, and I played, and he said, well, he said, you have a certain flair for the instrument, but I'm looking for postgraduate students. So Aww. I didn't go to study. <laughs> I, I always remember that. I thought that was so great. Wow. I can't imagine just sit, sitting and playing in a room for Heifetz. Of course. Oh, Nerve-wracking. I mean, he already had this legendary status yes. at that time. Oh, Absolutely. But um, I was young, of course, you know, I, now I would petrify. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that was a marvelous experience, boy. Amazing. Yeah. And um, you also had some uh, experience working with Yehudi Menuhin, is that right? Yes. Uh, he, he taught during the summers at Darlington Den. They had a nice 
summer in there. And I guess it was in my second to last summer uh, when I was in England. I, I did that and I had lessons with him. And his classes were supposed to be technique in the morning, mm -hmm. lunch, and then repertoire in the afternoon. That was how they advertised it. As it turned out, of course, it eventually became yoga in the morning. <laughs> and everything in the afternoon. Yes. <laughs> but I remember playing for him. And there was another guy, Charles Haupt. I don't know what happened to him. He's a wonderful guy. He was, he was going to, he was a Galama student, I guess. Mm. He'd come over and stay with me. Um, and uh, uh, the only thing Manny would say is that I had an elegant staccato. But then he said I should go to study with Galamian. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. Uh, and right away, I, I started trying to, you know, we started trying to make arrangements, mm -hmm. which I did after a year when I went to Julak. But many of us, the memories I have of him were just, when he entered the room, it was as if there was a glow in the room. He had the most wonderful expression on his face, and he, yeah, it sounds silly, but he almost floated into the room, you know, and he, he, everyone was... I remember once, I was a student at the academy. Uh, at the end of every year, they had, um, of course, student recitals, graduation recitals, where they were given awards mm -hmm. and so forth. And there was a girl, a pianist, who was playing. He, he was a judge this, this year. He was the one who was giving out the prizes. And this girl came and played, and she was so nervous that she missed notes, and she burst into tears and ran off the stage. And Manuel jumped up, ran over to her, and comforted her. <laughs> ah, I never forgot that guy. I've never seen that. <laughs> no, no. Oh, what a guy he was! Well, of course, I went to visit him when he was playing with the San Francisco Symphony. He was mm. visiting his parents in Oscarthos. That's where he was born. Really, yeah. right. And I knew about his habits and so on. I, mm -hmm. I brought a little lunch thing with some yogurt in it. Oh, no. it pretty, <laughs> which was thought was. But he was, and then I talked to him about Simmons later, mm. and he, he gave me some nice things to say in the book. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah and then there was this. Yeah, there were so many fabulous characters. I remember once. Do you know the name Alfredo Campoli? Alfredo Campoli. It sounds familiar. Yeah, he was very popular in England. He was in, okay. obviously an Italian violinist. Mm -hmm. He was um, very popular in the 30s, 40s, 50s okay. in England. And a wonderful player. Mm -hmm. Very, uh, uh, not undisciplined, but very free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember him. He was built like this. <laughs> And the poor guy at the festival hall in London, to get on stage, you go up three steps. And he came in, and slipped on the second oh. step, the poor guy. But he caught himself very, <laughs> very well and put on a good front. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a good save. <laughs> I also heard Milstein play a recital in London. And he started out on a B minor partita mm -hmm. and ended up in the D minor. Oh! <laughs> no one realized that until yeah. after he finished. <laughs> but, gee, wasn't that yeah. another piece? <laughs> he, did, he didn't notice it though. 
That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Of course, only Wolfstein could do that. Yeah. Probably. It might have been intentional, though. It <laughs> might have been intentional. You never can tell with him. He also came on stage and didn't bow uh, and started playing while the audience was applauding. I saw that. Characters. Yes. They're all trainers' characters. Yeah. I, I read um, Piatigorsky's uh, autobiography. Uh, and that's another. Um, I feel that uh, you you also share in this tradition of the the musical polymath, but a lot of these uh, people, a lot of these um, great players from the past, also were excellent writers. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that about me, but yes, I, I would. <laughs> but uh, yes, they were interested in so many things. Yes. Do you know the name Yasha Brodsky? Yes. Yes. First time's the Curtis Quartet, which is a wonderful group that uh, disbanded just about the time, unfortunately, that I was at Curtis. But I heard the mm -hmm. record and so on. And he was the chain music guy at Curtis. Mm -hmm. He was a great character, uh, as were so many of those old guys. And I remember my, one of my first chain music lessons with him, playing the Tchaikovsky Trio. And he was listening, and he said, he stopped and said, don't do that. And I said, why not? <laughs> and he came over and kneeled in front of me, and he said, because it sounds pukey. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you did that today, yeah. you'd be drawn and courted yeah. and fired. Sounds pukey. <laughs> because <laughs> he was doubtless right. <laughs> oh boy things have changed yeah I don't remember getting feedback like that from you um, <laughs> at you know, even though I'm sure I deserved it <laughs> I, I, I doubt that dear boy yeah Curtis was full of bumptious young people as you could well imagine too loud too yeah <laughs> <laughs> I found um, it interesting that in the uh, to go back to Leopold Auer again because I, I read the um, his the violin playing as I teach it yes a lot of the, his um, again a great writer yes um, and uh, have you read his autobiography yes that's a wonderful yeah. sorry didn't mean to yes yeah it's so fun reading the Zimbalist the Leopold Auer because they just had like contact with all the great yeah. you know composers and names it's just yes. a, a who's who yes um, so. But I just found it so interesting because I think there, also in American um, public uh, conception, there is this idea of the Leopold Auer school. You mm -hmm. have Heifetz, Symbolist, Elman, Seidel, all these great players. Yeah. And it's like, well, he must be doing something. You know, there must be the way, <laughs> the Auer way. Yeah. And yet, the way you describe it in the book, it sounds like almost the lack of a way. Like, it almost sounds like he had no real defined system. And yet there was still something that obviously it can't have been a coincidence that he had all these great players. No. Well, you know, obviously he was a wonderful musician, great musician, knew all the great people at that time. And he taught them by terror tactics. I mean, they were dead scared of him. I was scared of Galamian. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't, uh, Galamian was incredibly 
self-disciplined. His expression never changed. Once in a great while, he'd give you a little, little hint of a smile if you'd done fairly well. But otherwise, he was ter never raised his voice, terribly soft-spoken, and very, very patient, uh, and very uh, insistent. Mm -hmm. But Al, of course, was... was Entirely the opposite. Yeah. Flew into rages, that sort of thing. He, he talked about terror, who, terror tactics. I remember there was a story about him. Uh, I believe it was actually something positive. Alman played something well. Yes. And he just like punched him in the stomach or something. Yes. <laughs> Alman fell over on yeah. his back and everyone gasped. Uh, but that's because he thought it was so good. Yeah. And of course, the time when Zimmers was playing the class. Right. And he he, he stopped him. Took the stand, opened the door, threw it out in the corridor, yeah. and then threw some of the stuff <laughs> in the corridor. Yeah, yeah. but um, you know the truth is that I, uh, that um, Hauer, in all those years that he taught, he had let's say, or I guess say at best ten great students, right. or you know, well-known students. What about the? hundreds of countless yeah. hundreds that he must have taught before him a lot of people think that it was when he started getting these great talents yeah that he also learned from them mm. and he did say to Heifetz uh, when Heifetz asked him how he played this he said play it with your nose if you like you'll you play it you know yeah uh, and of course he when you see him when you see the, the see the pictures that he had taken when he did his Violent method yes. published in America mm -hmm. much when he was an old man. He's yep. he almost too old to see what he was doing, but he, they were very uh, exaggerated positions. Right. When you see pictures of as a younger man, his bow arm was just what was standard in those days, mm -hmm. which is the fingers fairly close together. Uh, his were even slightly curved, often they were stiff, straight mm -hmm. fingers in those days. Right. Um, but it certainly wasn't what Heifetz did. Yeah. Neither were any of the other. Our students, Zimblist's Bohold, was um, definitely not above the top knuckle. Mm -hmm. It was on the knuckle. Right. Although in this picture, picture there, it looks almost that way. Right. Um, Tosha Seidel had round fingers. Mm -hmm. Elman, I suppose, had a, a, a real sort of hour grip, fingers close together, and you could hardly see them, they, you know. His hands were so rubbery. <laughs> but, uh, and Shumsky, it's very interesting because Shumsky didn't have a round fourth finger. His fourth finger was often flat hmm. and was on top of the stick. He bowed almost like a cellist. He had the most wow. amazing bowing control. He changed bows this way, not oh. that way. And not this way. Right. So he achieved that That's roundness right. from this. That's right. Yes. Interesting. Huh. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sensational violinists. I think of all the violinists I've ever heard live. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to think about, the, 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 you know, the, the Heifetz uh, spectacle. But Chomsky is probably the most astonishing violinist I've ever heard. Wow. Yeah. But you know, with the Aura School, naturally when he it became famous and when he had students paying him a lot of money, he came up with some sort of a method, I suppose. Right. But who's to say and who knows? 
Zimbalist didn't think so. No. Yeah, very interesting. Of course, the one who had the real method was Carl Flesch. Right. And he produced so many fabulous finds that he had need a handle. Uh, but at the end of his life, he, he had decided that the hour of Bohm was the best, and some of his later students, like Gimple, mm. played in this way. Interesting. Yeah. And Carl Flesch, he was, was he at Curtis as well? There was, was a bit a, of a story about that, right? Certainly, yeah. yes. In the early days at Curtis, when, when Hoffman was its director, and the, the institute had just been started by uh, Mary Lewis Curtis Block, who eventually became Simmerist's mm. second wife, um, they, they wanted to hire the, the top teacher. And so Hoffman hired our. Uh, but eventually, well, what happened is that Chomsky went to study with our. Mm. He went to Curtis. And um, Chomsky's father felt that our was too old. Mm. So that's when they, uh, when Zimmerst became his teacher. Zimmerst had been on the faculty from the outset. He had been hired first by Hoffman. But he had told Hoffman that he was still touring too much. And, right. yeah. So he said, I'll teach when I can. And that's when they hired our. But um, on, on Simmons' recommendation. But uh, the, the touching part of it is that with Shumsky, he went to, uh, to, to Simmons and said, mm -hmm. I'd like uh, Shumsky, Oscar, to study with you. And he said, only if our asks me to oh, teach yeah. him this. And Auer did, mm -hmm. which was very nice. Because Zimmerts did so much for Auer when he came to the United States, right. pretty much penniless, in the 20s, having had a flea. Uh, he arranged a big benefit concert at which Rachmaninoff, Zimmerts, Heibitz, a lot of people played Hoffman. And they raised enough money to buy a house for Auer. There's a funny story about that too, because they, Rachmaninoff was also on that concert, and to be a fly on the wall for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and Heifetz um, uh, had, had played. Uh, let's see how it worked. Who played first? I can't recall that. But at some point, Heifetz asked Zimbers to accompany him, and he was going to play a piece by Achron, who was also right. an, an our student. A suite by Achron, with a very difficult piano part. But Heifetz had asked Zimbers to accompany him, and uh, Zimbers went out on stage and said, you know, I am going to need a turner. And uh, he said he heard steps, and then he saw somebody sit down next to him, and it was Rachmaninoff. <laughs> he said, what a dirty trick. And he said, I'm just here to turn your pages. That's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Boy, oh boy. Yes, it would have been great to see all of these people. Yes, absolutely. But I always went out of my way to try to meet interesting people, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and, and get autographs and so on. You have quite a few wonderful ones here that we're going we're gonna to make a separate video and show some of the treasures that are hanging around this room. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask, um, so... You had this 
awesomely, um, I guess, productive and close relationship with Zimbalist, your teacher. I just wanted to ask, um, maybe how did that uh, relationship start and um, how did it eventually lead to you composing his uh, biography? Well, um, I, I, I started at Curtis uh, with Galamia. That's how I, I got into Curtis. I was at Juilliard and I hated New York so much that <laughs> uh, I said to Galamia that I, I was going to go back to England. He said, why don't you go to Philadelphia to Curtis? You'll like it better in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I went to Curtis as his student that first year. And then I realized that Zimbus was there. I knew he was there. Right. But I saw some of his students, like Shmuel Ashkenazi and some other fabulous players. And I just thought, this is pretty crazy. I've had Galamian for right. two years. <laughs> I should also study with Zimbus. So um, I approached Zimbus, three secretaries, and he said, no, I would never take anyone else's student. Uh, unless he asked me. So I summoned up my courage and wrote Galamia a letter because I knew that I couldn't say to him directly and also that he got pretty deaf if he didn't want to hear something. Ah. <laughs> and I said that I uh, had this amazing experience of studying with him and I learned so many things. But since Zimus was at Curtis and he was so old, I'd love to be able to study with him. And Galamia got the letter evidently because I came into my lesson the next week and the studio was open. This was at Curtis. He used to come once a week to Curtis to teach. Doors open. There was the stand next to the piano. Glamour wasn't in the room. So I came in, put my music on the stand, and heard the door close behind me. And I turned around, it was him, and I, was a, I thought I was about to get killed. <laughs> and he had a slight smile on his face, and he said, I just came down from Zimbabwe, and I talked to him, and you'd be studying with him next year. What did you bring for the lesson? Oh. Wow. Yeah, and so I said, and I was so grateful. And he said something that I really admired him for. He said, what kind of a teacher would I be if you thought you could learn something for someone else and I didn't let you? Wow. That was great. And uh, so the first lesson I had was, with him, this was the next year. And over the course of the summer, I thought the heck with all this Galamian stuff. And I right. spent the whole summer <laughs> getting back to what I thought was yes. the, the way to do things. Yeah. And the way that I thought Zimbus did them, because I'd never seen him play. And at the first lesson, I played the Elgarten Chuda, which interested them because no one played it in those yeah. days uh, in America. And I saw him looking around me, walking around while I was playing. And he said, Did Mr. Galarian teach you to hold the bow that way? And I said, No. How do you hold the bow? He picked up the violin and held the bow. It wasn't that. Yeah. It was that, you know. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, and he said, right away, you have a long neck. Have you ever thought of using it for shoulder rest? And I said, do you use one? He said, no. And, of course, I thought the old guys, they <laughs> yeah, used yeah. to do this. They don't yeah. do shoulder rest. Right. You know? And I felt like such a fool. <laughs> so I went out and got my old yeah. shoulder rest back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was great. So it was he was a real uh, human being, you know. And he'd been through so many things and experiences in his life and uh, revolutions and uh, wives dying. 
and uh, financial you know, things. Of course, he did very well after the, the crash. Mm-hmm. He, he was a shrewd enough investor. He, he eventually became very wealthy in the last years. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating. He kind of made and lost and made yes. fortunes. That's right. Of course, when, before the crash, he and his wife were owning huge fees. His wife, Alma Gluck, the singer, and there, uh, one of the records was a bestseller. When he played in the backgrounds, and nobody got a yam, did on, da 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 da. Puts together perfectly well. That was a big hit. Yeah. Uh, so, I worked with him at Curtis and graduated from Curtis, and he had just had enough of it. He'd been there 47 years, and he decided to retire. And everyone thought that he was going to go to Los Angeles to be with his son from Junior. But no, they offered him a place. And he wanted to go stay with his daughter, who lived in Reno. She was older than Ephraim Junior, and she had lupus. Mm-hmm. And he said she needed someone to stay with him. Mm-hmm. She, he went there and stayed with her and nursed her, and she died later, and then he moved into an apartment. But... Uh, after my last lesson at Curtis, I had just gotten a job with San Francisco Symphony. Uh, and I knew that he was going to Nevada. And I told him that I was going to be in San Francisco. And uh, a few weeks, or perhaps a month or two later, after I'd settled in, I had a call from Maria Zimlist, his daughter, to say that uh, Mr. Zimlist would like to see me. So I said, sure went and saw him and we had a lovely visit. That's when he started. That was the first time I ever saw him smoke a cigar. Oh, yeah. Because at the lessons, he always put it out in the bathroom. And and he was, in fact, the room was always a cloud of smoke. And I, when I was working in the book later on, I used to say, can you have a little fresh air? He opened the window. (laughs) Um, So... I heard of these stories and things that I hadn't heard at the lessons. The lessons were pure business. Right. And then I started asking him things that had been in my mind for mm-hmm. years about various cities, uh, various violins and people he'd known and so forth. And uh, he always spoke about them. And uh, I could see that he had an enormous store of memories, mm-hmm. an incredible memory. And... Um, that was fun. I spent an afternoon with him. And then about a week later, he called and said he'd like to me to visit again. I thought, well, that's pretty strange, you know. <laughs> and I did. And we went on that way. I would drive down there perhaps every other two weeks mm-hmm. and see him and got to know the family very well and everyone. And then I recorded his sonata ah, right. with Robin Southern, a fabulous pianist with whom I worked for 50 years. Uh, and so, and we recorded Ephraim Junior's sonata too. Mm. Yeah. So um, after a while, I thought, well, you know, someone's got to write a book about this guy. And I mentioned that to him at one of these lessons, and he said, "I said, uh, you know, someone should write a book." Nah, I tell you how it happened. When he turned eighty-six, the Pittsburgh radio station decided to put something out about him. And they got together a little 
program giving out information. Uh, I don't know where they got it. And uh, Vladimir Sokolov, German mm -hmm. pianist, got a co copy of it. Mm -hmm. It was a con on a cassette in those days, and I used to take a cassette play, belong to meetings with him. So I said, you know, there's this program. Would you, would you like to hear? And he said, yes, put it on. And I put it on, and he listened for a few minutes. He said, where did they get this nonsense? <laughs> and I said, well, it's your fault. You won't let anyone write <laughs> your book or interview you, you know. <laughs> and a few weeks after that, I had a call from him saying that he would like me to, to write the biography. He wanted, he wanted someone to get the story straight, finally. <laughs> exactly. And I said, oh, well, that's great. You're going to have your biography written. I imagine it'll be by Marsha Davenport, who was his stepdaughter. Right. Brilliant writer, of course. One of the great minds. And he said, no, I think you should write it. You know more about me than anyone else. Hmm. What he really meant was that Marsha probably knew things he didn't want. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? But in any event... That's how it happened. And I said, uh, I asked him if he would mind if I brought this little recorder along to record the conversation. And he said, no, it would be fine. What he didn't know is that I'd been doing that all along, yeah. but I hadn't <laughs> told him about it. Yes. So I have really hundreds of hours of conversation that wow. I, I probably will give to the Curtis, you know. Yes, that'd be, that's those treasures. But yeah. they're all on, on cassettes, which can be transcribed, I'm sure, mm -hmm. for these days. But that's how it started, and I just visited him then every week for, uh, well, it was until he died. Uh, and I would bring him what I'd written, mm -hmm. and he'd cross out something. Else. Oh, wow, so he was involved in the process, just. Yes. Kind of, so it's, it's the authorized, yes. the authorized symbolist no, biography. Not strictly, because <laughs> there were things he didn't want me to talk I about, see. but I eventually, after he... Uh, that I did write in the book. Yeah. And as a result, he never saw those parts. And we're rolling. Okay. So we were just talking about uh, uh, how you were, you have a, a trove of recordings from the, uh, from the interviews and, and just conversations you had with Symbolist at the end of his life. And uh, we were talking about the, uh, whether or not, how, how authorized was this biography? <laughs> Well, uh, on the whole, it was authorized. But there were certain things that Zimbalist had decided he didn't want right. mentioned. Uh, when he, of course, he was born Jewish in Russia. But he saw such terrible things. He and his wife, Alma Gluck, both, she was a Romanian Jew. Mm. That when he came to the United States... And this happened with many uh, such immigrants. He decided that he would uh, denounce his, mm. you know, his, his birth rights. Mm. And um, what he said to me is that he did such terrible things, he didn't want any of his children to go through the same right. experiences. Right. And so from then on, uh, he, especially when he married his second wife, he became an Episcopalian, but whatever it was, he didn't want any of that kind of thing talked about. Right. And I, uh, I realized that pretty quickly, because when I wrote anything about that, mm -hmm. he would take his red pen and just cross it out. He wouldn't say a word. He yeah. just, 
And once I said to him, Mr. Zimbus, why? It's the only time I ever saw him get almost angry. He said, because I saw such terrible things I never wanted my children ever to see again. Mm -hmm. And that was that. So I knew after that not to put anything in that spoke about any all the difficulties that, that he had. Right. didn't want that talked about. He, he wasn't interested in that. Right. But I thought that readers should know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe some of those things were painful for him personally to talk yes. about, but to get the picture of him on the whole, they're still important. Yes, no, I thought that too. So I finished the book, uh, uh, sadly, after he died, uh, and it was published uh, quite a bit after he, no, about six months after he died, it was published. And I remember uh, sending it to Ephraim Jr. Mm. And he said, no, you absolutely can't, you can't release this stuff. And it was at least four years after I'd written the book uh, when my friend Robin Southern, the pianist, and I ran the Telluride Chain Music Festival for, well, 46 years. Mm -hmm. And we had Ephraim Jr. come up there as a guest. Uh, of course, Telluride has a great film festival. They were yep. pleased to have him too. And uh, we played his sonata and his dad's sonata. And at the airport, we were standing with him. And I had been in touch with the family numerous times to try to get permission. Yeah. And he said, no, I've been thinking about it. It's been enough time. Yeah. They might as well. He said, go ahead and do it. Ah, dear man. And he said, but don't let anyone think that I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yes, so then it was published. I had it published without any trouble. But, uh, Wonderful. Well, it's an incredible book. Go read it. <laughs> Go read uh, Roy Milan's biography of Ephraim Zimbalist, the best uh, book I've read on just a 20th century violinist, legendary figure, who had, I feel, uh, who had influence beyond just the violin. He was so involved in Curtis Institute and, and music education, and, and he, he was pioneering in so many ways yes. that it's beyond just the violin that he had an influence. Certainly. Uh, and one of the chief ways is when you consider that he was the earliest violinist to play extensively in Japan right. and brought the first Japanese students to study at Curtis. Right. And of course, today, where would we be without Asian uh, violinists? Yeah. He was, that, those tours, it was fascinating to read about those tours. I mean, speaking of all the hardships and everything, you you mentioned earlier, I, I uh, can only imagine, because he would be gone for months at a time. Yeah. I mean, he'd be gone for three, four, five months. Yes, and they would travel the world, of course, on these boats. Yeah. And they'd take their pianist along. Uh, Zimbalist wife, Alma Gluck, often had tours of her own within the United States. Right. I don't think she did a lot of international tours. And once in a great while, she would go with him on a certain leg of the journey, right. and then they drop her off and, you know, she'd go back, back home to the family yeah. and so forth. Take that nice, you know, four-week boat ride. Or <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And then he would be gone. I think the longest was nine-month tour. Wow. All over the place. Incredible stamina. Yeah. When you think about it. And um, he talked about being in Malaysia and so on, and, and tremendous humidity and strings snapping. 
Yes, he, uh, the time when he was with his pianist, um, it was in Java, I think, and they were absolutely roasting. They were wearing uh, silk suits, and he even had an aluminum violin <laughs> in case anything happened. Yeah. And he and his pianist uh, met this guy who ran a butcher shop, and they went in, uh, into the the cooler to, to sit for 10 minutes <laughs> to cool off before the concert. Oh, I mean, things like that don't happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> yes, so he was enormously influential that way. And when you think uh, of the, well, the Philadelphia Orchestra, certainly, but a lot of the other orchestras around the country, uh, how many of them in those days had Curtis grads? Right. You know? Yeah, fewer today, possibly, because Juilliard has become such a, a huge thing. But now it's amazing what the Curtis did. Yeah, it's true. It just kind of, you kind of pointed out how so many of the concert masters of, like, from that your class, your generation, just kind of like spread all throughout the United States. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Curtis said, uh, you just had a feeling that you didn't have any problems because they'd help you with whatever you needed. Mm. Especially for foreign students, that was very uh, comforting. Yeah, it was a great school. And of course still is. Changed mm. a lot. Right. Yeah. Um. We we had a wonderful friend in, in uh, Eleanor Sokolov, mm. the, who was the wife of Vladimir Sokolov, journalist, wow. last conference, who taught piano. She was, she was, I think she passed away recently. She but passed away at the age of 106 wow. this summer. And she was incredible. Uh, I heard a lot of Kurt's history from her. We mm -hmm. used to visit her every summer in Maine, mm. where she summered. All full of wonderful stories. Mm. Yes. But there was nothing they wouldn't do at Curtis to help you. Really supportive environment. And no doubt fostered in part by his impulse and yes. kind of his, his attitude about teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, um, in your, uh, I read an interview um, that you did for after retiring from the uh, ballet. And, um, and you mentioned something similar where it's like, uh, you said something like, oh, I don't know, we can't have as much fun anymore or something <laughs> about a, uh, a, a, a some some adventuresome tours uh, with the ballet. So with the ballet. Yeah. What were some of those uh, experiences you had? Well, of course, they were all bus tours. And, uh, oh, gosh. I just remember Alex Horvath, who was the contractor. He was the one who actually started the orchestra. He'd been concertmaster to ABT in New York. And he was going with Betsy Erickson, the great dancer. And she got a job with... San Francisco Ballet, and he decided to accompany her to San Francisco. Uh, and he persuaded uh, Lou Christensen at that time, was the director, to stop using the Oakland Symphony for the ballet and to get their own orchestra. And Alex formed that orchestra, he got people from all over the place. He, he was the one who got me the, mm -hmm. the job as concertmaster. Uh, and Alex had toured with ABT quite a good deal. 
So on those early bus tours with the San Francisco Ballet, he always knew exactly it would be in the tiniest town. For example, Paso Robles, yes. which we know Paso yeah, Robles. Near, near where I grew up. But I didn't know it then. And not many people knew we were on this bus. And we were, oh, Paso Robles, we're on a road tour. And uh, he, he said, what are we going to do? And he said, oh, I'll tell you exactly where to eat. And he had his little book and he knew every one of these towns because he toured for years with it. I grew up there. I don't, I don't know where to eat. <laughs> but he was always right. He knew what to do and where to go. It was really great fun. Uh, they, those tours were more adventuresome. I remember oh, I lived with me in Tijuana going across the sea to Mexico. Not to play, just to look a bit. Hmm. That's how I saw most of the United States when I first knew it. And yeah, they were adventures. Things happened in those days that. Oh, sorry. Sorry, that probably wouldn't happen anymore. Right. Especially as regards uh, choreographers and ballet masters and so on. They treated the, the dancers pretty roughly. We yeah. felt so sorry for them. Wow. Yeah, speaking of, of uh, endurance and, uh, and stamina. Yes, yeah. and insults. Wow, yeah. Hmm. Something they were pretty beastly. And, and they were all amazing characters. Of course, Mark Morris wasn't, wasn't unkind. He was great. He wasn't one of them, but he was such a great guy. He had, uh, it was a piece by... Purcell or somehow it was an early music suite that he choreographed to. I forget what it was right now, and it was very involved and very difficult. But also, it, it wasn't the kind of stuff that looked hard. Right. So I remember at the first rehearsal, we played this piece. I wish I could remember what it was. And Mark's face came over the edge of the pit, and all he said was, "Hooray!" <laughs> And he didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Um, as um, as a leader uh, of that orchestra for so many years, what did you uh, learn about, I guess, musical leadership, or what, like, what, as a concertmaster, what did what did that experience kind of teach you about leading an orchestra, both musically or just? Uh, you know, personnel or the other ways that concertmasters are expected to kind of help facilitate. Well, that's interesting, you know, because um, there are so many stories about concertmasters. You know, how do you tell a concertmaster the one who has the most daggers in their back? <laughs> um, you know, Joseph Silverstein, who was mm -hmm. one of the greatest concertmasters of all. I remember early on with the ballet saying to Joey, you know, what do you tell me? And he said, Never play with a downbeat. He said, if you do, you'll be early. Okay. Because by the time it gets to the back, right. that's especially true in the pits, you'd be by yourself. Mm -hmm. And you, you do see this in bad orchestras. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're going to speak yeah. the orchestra. He said, you give a sign and play with what comes from behind you. Mm -hmm. And I always did that. Mm -hmm. You do this, and then when you hear the sound, you play. I see. And that's interesting because it's, uh, it's a very passive way. Yeah. You think that, you, you know, this is going to get things done. Right. But it, it makes you think differently. It made me grateful for chamber music training. Right. So um, that, that helped a lot. 
The difficulty in the pit, of course, that you never had enough room and the sound was deafening. Mm -hmm. So I had brass and winds next to which I love. I mean, I love the welter of the sound yeah. in there. But it was difficult, and a lot of people ended up wearing earplugs, right. which they do in symphonies now, too. Yeah. It seems a pity. They couldn't have figured out a way. But Did you I, ever wear earplugs? No. Okay. no. But I have to say, though, that uh, much as I love symphonic playing, there really is nothing like being in the ballet pit in the middle of Swan Lake or mm -hmm. something, and you, you look up and you see what's going on in the sound. You're just in a bath of sound. Yeah. So it's an amazing experience. And you learn more about, if you like, trade musical musicianship and give and take in ballet than you do any time in symphony. Because of the flexibility required. Yes. You know, in a second you've got to adjust. And, and of course the ballet conductor's job is enormously tough. Yeah. And there's some very great conductors who conducted ballet. Yeah. And opera too, I love to talk about playing with the opera for four seasons. Mm. Yeah. I've had more experience playing in opera than I have ballet. I haven't played much ballet, but I, I find it's it's very it's exciting. It's kind of scary at times. It's scary. <laughs> because of because of the adaptability required. Every night is different yes. and at just moment to moment. Yes. Things are very flexible. And it's great because I think some symphony players, having played a few five or six times in the run, I mean what they play three or four times a week. Yeah. But I was next to, almost next to Rote. Right. I was with the symphony just two years until they offered me the ballet job. And I'm glad I, I changed. And, and then after a while I did the opera as well. For five years I did both. Oh, I, I enjoyed it so much more. And I love symphonic playing. Mm -hmm. As concertmaster with a symphony, you can get a little bit of that feeling of chance right. because you could suggest a fingering or, right. you know. But uh, you learn a lot about Boeing, mm -hmm. uh, having to put Boeings in. Right. I remember speaking of Boeings and conductors. I played when, my first job when I uh, left school was in Washington D.C. I was trying to work on my papers and so on. I played with the National Symphony. Mm. Um, oh, the audition too was so different. It was in Constitution Hall, and the, there were three or four people auditioning, I remember, but it wasn't like it is today when right. you've got thousands. Uh, and I arrived early, and I was on stage, they set me up there, and I was practicing and playing a little bit. And Dorati was the conductor, Anton Dorati. And pretty soon, the personnel manager came up and said to me, thank you very much, and I said, well, what do you want me to play? And he said, oh no, Mr. Dorati came and he heard you, 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 you're in. <laughs> and I just left it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just had some good warm-ups. I mean, if you have any tips for those warm-ups, they <laughs> 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 seem to work well. <laughs> I, I don't know what it was. But in the National Symphony, I played under Stokowski. Wow. And uh, boy, was that a thrill. And he sent an assistant to all except the last rehearsal. So, and they knew what he was doing, and we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. Um, and of course he had his rehearsal, and he said his, his famous thing about Boeing's, mm -hmm. no Boeing's, you know, he right. looked like trained monkeys. <laughs> except, 
at one place we did something and he stopped and he said, no, play that down bow. <laughs> <laughs> it was All three bugs. Except, Except that one. <laughs> it's funny. But I must say that uh, I never heard the horse play better. Mm. He just had you absolutely scrutinizing every move. It was amazing. Wow. So he was, he was, I played, I mean, I didn't, the, I mean, the closest to that generation I played with was Lauren Mazel. Yes. I played at his music festival and it was interesting. He did something similar where, at least for our first concert, it was the assistant for like, you just yes. like, just, just fixing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Getting everything ready. And then Mazel came in for that last part. Uh, yes. It's like the king has arrived. <laughs> That's right. Boy, interesting. But a guy, he was of course great violinist. Yeah, yeah. I love William Steinberg. Great Brahms. They did Brahms with him, San Francisco mm. Symphony, and you know he he'd had a stroke or something. He could hardly move. Wow. But I heard the also play much better. Mm. Just every little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. What a great pleasure. It's been an amazing conversation. Go read um, Ephraim Zimbalist. Read the biography by uh, Roy Milana. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure.